Today on The Black Goat, Samin just finished four years editing a journal, and we talk about what's next for her, and a letter about what happens outside of the open science bubble. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tollett and Samin Vizier. I have a very important question for you guys. What's what that, do you Sanjay? think of what do you think of adult men wearing shorts to work? <laughs> and so here, here's why I'm asking. Um, I, I'm wearing pants right now. It's summer. It's pretty hot today in Eugene. For the record, we can't confirm whether Sanjay is wearing pants right now. <laughs> the Skype call only goes down so far. Um, no, I am wearing pants. And I don't have so I, I, I have uh, my opinions about what people wear. I have this like very strong dual consciousness thing going on which is that i have i have a very strong principled view that that like people should be able to wear what they want to wear and that they shouldn't like there's all kinds of gendered and social class and other things that can that sort of society just heaps on people about dressing and i think the only like principled thing to do is to not like police what other people put on their bodies and then on the other hand i have very strong opinions (laughs) And uh-huh. I, uh, so personally, like I, it, even if like it's the middle of the summer, I have a day when I don't have any meetings, um, I'm not going to see anybody, like I'm very reluctant to wear shorts to work. And I think it looks uh, on a personal level, like it just sticks out to me when I see like grown men wearing shorts in the workplace. But what do you guys think of that? I think my reaction is probably really s- okay. So I'm not sure. Part of me wants to say my reaction is really similar to you, um, in that like I think people should wear whatever they want. And also, I, I dress like a slob in the summer. Like, <laughs> shorts would be like on that high end some days. Um, but then like I'm actually, yeah. So first of all, I can have, I can have reactions to other people's clothing that is inconsistent with my philosophy that people should be able to wear what they want but also i'm not a hundred percent sure that i would notice if one of my colleagues wore it depends on on what you mean by work so if one of my colleagues was like hanging out in his office and wearing shorts i could not notice in fact i think i do have colleagues who wear shorts to work in the summer um but if i saw them in front of a class teaching i might feel differently also it depends clearly on how short the shorts are (laughs) I have and, no and, idea what you which, guys are which talking direction about. Is this, which direction does this correlation go? Wait, uh, longer shorts are more permissible? <laughs> is, is that it, what is you're it, asking? I don't know. Like, is it curvilinear? Is it shorter, better, longer, better? I feel oh, like it might it's, be curvilinear. I think it's like, curvilinear. Because if you get like basketball shorts, that sounds inappropriate. But then there's like slightly shorter <laughs> shorts that are maybe maybe the best case scenario. And then there's really short shorts that are, again, not okay. I think the the fashion trend for men has been like towards shorter and even like in my personal life I'm like yeah I I don't want to do that I suspect other people don't want me to like you know <laughs> go like past a certain point with my hemlines um but no, this like, is so I, I, weird I don't get any of this <laughs> I, I have shorts no idea. to work like, all the time I don't think I've taught in shorts at like large undergrad lecture classes I don't think I would do that but I wouldn't care at all I wouldn't it wouldn't register if other people did it at all 
That's so funny. So yeah, like I said, I have this dual consciousness because I like, you know, I form a judgment and then there's a part of me that like is shaming the part that formed the judgment. Like, why are you judging people on what they wear? So so I'm just talking about the, that first <laughs> I'm part that, that other voice. In your, <laughs> it like really never occurred to me that, that this was even a question. But I don't believe you, Samin. Like, I think that there are some pairs of shorts where you would yes. be like, whoa, what is that But there's person? some dresses where I would think that. There's some yeah, sure. probably ties where I would think that's an offensive tie or that's not appropriate or whatever. Of course, any category of clothing, you can think of tokens where that it's not okay. But the yeah, category but- of shorts, I, I mean, for I'm talking about academics here. And I'm, I will, like, put make an exception for large lecture classes. Um where i don't know so why, how i feel but why yeah what so let's so you so so you do have a line it's just in a different place yeah. right like and teaching. also like yeah with it just never occurred to me that for just like walking to my office and working in my office that it that shorts was even so what's 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 wrong why why do you have a problem with men wearing shorts to teach the mean why are <laughs> I, you so judgmental i think i really don't i think the only <laughs> thing is like i know that the way i dress when i teach has like been noticed by people so then i think about it a little bit more and that i never really considered that that applies to other parts of my work i guess if i like regularly had meetings with deans or something i would know that that applies there but i don't have any other parts of my work where i think i might get judged for what i wear so i don't think about it anyway i mean obviously i know that i can't literally wear anything you're right but um but shorts were never a category the way i felt like i had to think about i guess the other day we had a like award ceremony for our honor students and I did change out of my flip flops before I went to that. So maybe mm-hmm. if I had been wearing shorts I would have changed into pants for that. Yeah. So this is I mean this is the this is where like the dilemma in my head happens where I'm like cuz clothes there's so much you know there, there's so much societal baggage that gets heaped onto judgment. So that's why like I I want to take this and I really try to stick to it, but like, you know, not, not judging people. But I also feel like, well, one, if I'm going to judge anybody, like straight cisgendered men are, are probably where I'd start. But, but two, like there, in addition to all the, like the way that, you know, clothing requirements constrain gender and social class and all these other things, there's also a way that they communicate things that I think are okay. Like a sense of occasion and, and, you know, um, right. But going into your office to work is not an occasion, I guess. I guess I think of like teaching 400 students is kind of an occasion. So that's why yeah. I'm like a little bit more OK with like, OK, I need to actually stop and think. But there's isn't aren't there things that you wouldn't wear into the office like you wouldn't wear your pajamas. Of course. But yeah, right. and I, w- I wouldn't wear anything into the office that I wouldn't wear to the grocery store or to maybe something a little bit more important than a grocery store, but not a lot, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I also think the gendered aspect of this question is interesting because maybe it's just like the variety of shorts that I'm picturing for men and for women. But I think I can picture lots of like very work appropriate shorts for women and for men. I know they exist, but when I picture like men wearing shorts, it's like a different thing. And I think there are other categories of clothing that are like that too. So for instance, like I think it's okay for women to wear tank tops to work, but not men. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but I'm, <laughs> but I do think that I make that that judgment. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I slam on the brakes on my judgment much harder for women, just because I know women have to deal with so much shit 
being judged about their appearances. I remember years ago, like this was, I think, before I even went to grad school, working in an office, and there was uh, a woman who was wearing um, shorts at work. This was like at a law firm, but she, she wasn't a lawyer. I think she was, and it was like the summertime, and and I, you know, but anyway, like it was totally work appropriate thing but I someone pulled her aside and was like and it was it was one of those pairs of shorts that looks like a skirt except that it's sewn together in the middle but it, if you didn't sew it together it would totally just be a skirt and skirts were fine and so it was like and I remember her talking about it afterwards and being like literally just it's the fact that it's sewn together in the middle <laughs> the fact is that they the can't problem. accidentally flash people is it's bad. so <laughs> fucking arbitrary yeah yeah and it, it like that's the kind of shit that you know is just ridiculous and and i agree you know alexa that like uh i think women's attire is just also the the standards are shifting and flexible and there's also like you know there's there's more i think play and experimentation in women's clothing where like you can take something that's traditionally not for a certain setting and make it into that there's some of that for men's clothing but i think men's clothing is more traditional but most of this is just like just this gut feeling that like shorts are not workplace attire which is a very traditional view uh, for men um uh and and so i think it's just like my upbringing traditionalist i'm surprised you think of your i can't defend i think i'm surprised you think of your department as a workplace (laughs) 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 i i love that those words just came out of your mouth I see the problem I mean, with I, them now that I've said them. <laughs> like, I, I think I know what you mean, but, like, actually saying those exact I know, words I is know. hilarious. I see that now. <laughs> no, but I, I know what you mean that, like, the, the especially in the summertime, like, there is, you know, because we work everywhere, and, yeah, there's more of this sense of, like, if I have a meeting or a class, like, it's driven by the things you do, not by the location you're in. I think maybe mm-hmm. that's kind yeah. of a little bit what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I probably I think I do occasionally wear shorts to the office in the summertime when it's just absurdly hot. But I I feel a little weird about it. I also just like some of it is personal. Like, I think I'm more restrained for myself than I care about even about other people. Like, I don't know, it just something about like you put on your clothes and it's got these subconscious associations with different activities and and you know and also like there's a little part of me that's like our other people gonna be judging me um mm-hmm. like are you know are, are people behind my back it sounds be, like there are more like, people i don't want to look at sanjay's legs or whatever it sounds like yeah. there are more people around in your department than mine i don't know that there are <laughs> I, I just think about them <laughs> yeah. ima- they're imagining people in my head yeah. surrounding me at all times judging me um that's actually true but uh, i'll sometimes <laughs> in the summer i'll sometimes wear tights to to my workplace, which I don't think of as a workplace in that situation. Um, if I'm just going to be in my office, like doing work and not meeting with anyone and not teaching because I'll like go to the gym first and then go straight to work. And like on those days, sometimes I'll go downstairs to get coffee, which takes me by the main psychology office. And I do try to like avoid seeing people because yeah, it's like, I, I feel like I basically am wearing pajamas. I yeah, know. I wouldn't wear tights to the it. grocery store, so that doesn't violate my rule. Of- do you wear tights? <laughs> no. Wait, are you asking me? Or 
I just got I just got a, a pair of uh, uh, track pants that I, I I'll only wear them around the house, but they're super comfortable. Mm. They're, they're as close. I think they're as close as most guys get to tights. Um, I, I'm starting I, to realize now that I've been uh, letting my lifestyle go a little bit too much. Like I live across the street from my department, so like if I want to go from my department to a coffee shop, even if they're only two blocks away, I walk past my house or sometimes through my house. And so like if I walk my dog around the block. It's, I'm like on campus right by the psych department. Um, so like sometimes I, I try to get dressed before I walk my dog, but like once in a while I've walked my dog like really early in the morning, still in sweats or something. And I assume like no one will be around yet. Or like I've, I've broken my own rule a couple of times where like I let myself go out. And I think those kinds of things have like created this slippery slope for me where I'm like, there's a very blurry line between the geographic location of my work and home. And then that blurs other lines. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think that might be more than geographic. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> Hence <Yeah>. your question. <laughs> yeah. Consider your office a workplace. <laughs> uh, well, should we uh, should we move on and and do our letter? Yeah. Sure. So this is a letter that we got almost one year ago now, and one of the reasons that um, we're reading it today is because it's. Um, relevant to SIPs. So I sort of saved this letter so that it would be like more timely. Um, so it begins with Dear Goaters, which I I always like that people don't really know how to address us as a, as a trio. So there's like a lot of different, a lot of different ways that people start letters. Um, I attended SIPs some weeks ago. This was last year. Um, here's an observation I would be interested to hear your thoughts on. In the SIPs world, everything seems to be really straightforward. Here's the twist. People at SIPS talk about a movement, but what happens if you go outside the SIPS bubble? And this person coined the acronym that I'm going to pronounce OSIPSB. I have no data, but I wonder whether the world is actually that ready, that willing and open to adopt these new standards and actually make a paradigm shift in how we, people do science. I work at a business school and there's a lot of finger pointing towards psychology. I have a similar feeling that within psychology, there is a lot of finger pointing towards social psych. Uh, the idea is like this is clearly a problem with psychologists, but not with us, i.e., economic or economists, consumer psychologists, business people, accounting researchers. Another Osipsby experience I had was talking to an action editor at the Journal of Consumer Psychology last year. We got into a heated debate about the most basic issues, e.g., sharing data, pre-registered studies, etc. Is this an observation that you share? What would be good steps to address these issues? Should we talk about this at SIPS to get a better balance between enthusiasm and real-world requirements? Thanks for your thoughts. Best, Anonymous. Yeah. So I guess I've heard this sentiment from um, people who have attended SIPS and then in the few weeks after they sort of like experience this like strange readjustment period where, um, yeah, they're the that like exciting environment is no longer there and they're now um the, i think that the experience at sips is unique because there's no sort of like we go past the first step of i guess agreeing that um on sort of like basic stuff like pre-registration and open data i mean i think there are uh, various positions represented at sips on all of the topics that we talk about but there's some sort of like fundamental shared understanding of of what people value and what the issues are and things like that um and then to leave and 
to be then around people who don't share those fundamentals is sort of strange. And then also I think there's just some of the regular sort of like post-conference depression where you go back to the real world and you're like, oh, I'm sad that I'm not like around exciting people talking about inspiring stuff all the time. Um, do you guys have this experience when you yeah. leave conferences, SIPs specifically? I, I have this experience when we hang up after our podcast. <laughs> 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 no, like, I, I mean, I think the, the you know, the observation that they're, they're saying, I wonder about, like, is the world that ready, that willing, you know, compared to SIPs? And it's like, no, of course not. Like, uh, um, uh, but I think the, to me, this is, this is why... Yeah, I got a couple of thoughts about this. One, one is that this is why scholarship about open science is really important because I think when you talk to colleagues, it it shouldn't be like, like why why are you doing this thing? Why are you thinking it's important? Like you should have an answer, and the answer shouldn't be because those people are doing it. Um, and so, if you can ground your answer in what are presumably shared values with the person you're talking to. Um, like the in a general sense, like wanting science to work well and you know your sort of ideals. Um, but then then making a reasoned, logical and evidence-based case as much as possible for why we have to do XYZ in a way that's not preachy or patronizing or condescending. That's why I think shared values is important, not saying like I'm a I'm a good person and I'm doing this to be a good person and maybe you're not, but saying like, you know, I think we all, you know, you don't have to say this explicitly, but if it's sort of the undercurrent of like, you know, we, we want science to make interesting discoveries and we want people to, we want it to be fair and all these other things. We want people outside of science to see our work, like all these things that are on their own relatively uncontroversial. And then you say like, why open access? It's so that, you know, people who aren't, who don't have institutional subscriptions can benefit from our work. Like how could someone disagree with that? Well, I can, but you know, um, so I think, I think like, but, but also like more specific things, like being able to talk about like when someone says pre-registration is going to, you know, I don't understand why I have to do it, or I think it's going to limit my ability to do exploratory work or whatever. And, and being able to say, well, not just say like, no, I disagree, but to say like, you know, well, there's this really good paper on pre-registration that explains or say there's this example or there's this meta-scientific study that shows how, what proportion of pre-registered papers have exploratory analyses, which I don't even know if that paper exists. If it doesn't, uh, someone should do it. Um, yeah, so I think I, I think that's the way to engage with people is like engage with them like colleagues, engage with mm -hmm. them like people you respect, like your professional peers, um, persuade them with logic and evidence. Um, but then also the other, the flip side, which is going to sound like I'm contradicting myself a little bit. Um, I, I often think persuasion is a little bit overrated. I think we, uh, rational persuasion, um, the sort of like, I think we, it's an ideal we hold up in academia. And I do think it's like a fundamental basis of how we engage with each other, but also like, you know, I think people, I think this is why it's important to change institutions and change, like people also respond to incentives and they also respond to, to what people around them are doing. Um, and I think we need to be careful exercising that aspect of things um, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not like arguing for mobs or, or coercion, but, um, you know, like, I think the more people are doing something, the more people will do it. And it's not always just purely through a like, 
completely like, oh, you have given me a logical case and persuaded me. Sometimes it's like, okay, uh, everyone seems to think this is a good idea. I'll do it too. I mean, that's how we started p-hacking was that like nobody made a logical case for p-hacking. It was just like, well, everybody does this, so I guess it's okay. Um, and so we can kind of use that in the other direction too. Mm-hmm. I also like the part of the uh, letter that asks about balancing the um, enthusiasm and real world requirements because the letter sort of focuses on like, okay, what do you do when you get back into the real world and how do you like, how do you operate within the real world? But I think keeping both of those things in mind is important. So I think anytime you're trying to do something that that goes against the status quo to some degree, um, you need to keep in mind what the status quo is and be able to like relate to, p- to people who, you know, yeah. are not like on the same train that you are on at this point. But then also it's nice to remember that there are people who do feel the same way as you. And I remember, Samin, when you were first talking about starting SIPs, you were, you talked about how like you wanted there to be like one thing that you did each year where there were like, and I'm sure there's many more now, but where there were like a bunch of people that agreed on the basic issues and then you could sort of build from there and have like a community. Yeah. Um, so I think like remembering both things in each context is important. Yeah. I mean, I feel like bubbles get a bad name. <laughs> There's no time and a place for bubbles. Exactly. And, I mean, yeah, so yeah, the thing with when we when I start when Brian and I started SIPs, I think for me, the goal was we don't need to all agree on what the problem is or how big it is, whatever. But I don't want to debate that. I want to move past that and mm-hmm. start working on improvements and solutions without getting bogged down I felt like all the other conferences I was going to we would never get past like is there a problem what was the cause of the problem how big is the problem and so we would Mm -hmm. never get to like well okay what can we do better so I wanted to like skip past that first part and just get people together who are ready to start working on solutions and improvements and then we may or may not agree on on the first part but at least we're not going to like take up all the time debating that but I do think that doesn't mean we should be out of touch with reality or way too, too idealistic about, you know, how to implement the solutions. I think if we want the solutions to work, then we need to be realistic and pragmatic about where the rest of the field is and what are the obstacles and why are other people not on board and things like that. So we need, yeah, that needs to be part of how we approach improvement. Um, but I think, yeah, so maybe we need to be careful about not going too far into the bubble and into this thinking of like we can just put those other issues aside for now there's ways in which i think we need to put some things aside to get to make any progress and ways in which i think we need to not forget what the realities and the constraints are mm-hmm. right well have we uh i hope we um i hope we've answered the the letter i don't know this so this episode i think is going to come out right before sip so it's possible some people listening to this are are literally on their way to sips uh, as they're listening, so hi everybody, see you soon. Um, uh-huh. But uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully this is this is helpful not just to people attending the SIPS conference, but also just to people sort of involved in open science and in all the different ways that, that people are. And you can write us letters after SIPS and tell us if you have other questions or ideas or thoughts after the conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 totally. Like, uh, send us email us letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com if you if you are listening to this before at SIPS or if you're not um, and you just have anything you want to talk to us about, that's how to reach us. Um, we and yeah, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at blackgoatpod. Instagram at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com/blackgoatpod, and our website www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. 
And you can listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher and on our website. And if you go to those services like iTunes, you can rate us and that helps people find us. And we always appreciate that. Um, yeah. So for our main topic today, we're talking about Samin. Uh, <laughs> So Samin just wrapped up four years as the is editor in chief. Everyone calls it editor in chief. I never actually see that in the masthead. Like it just says editor, but nobody. Oh, does it? Okay. Anyway, Samin as the the big Kahuna at uh, the the journal Social Psychological and Personality Science, and she wants to know what next. And so Alexa and I have a long list of (laughs) suggestions for her. I think uh, dog trainer, mm-hmm. um, seaweed not spokesperson. <laughs> um, I was trying to, to think what else. Alexa, do you have other? I want to mean to be my property manager. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. Property manager manager. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll be a, shorts yeah, I can be a spokesperson for property managers. Campus, <laughs> campus shorts model. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, so Samin, I think when this comes up, is going to have just put up a blog post uh, with some reflections on your time at SPPS and some thoughts about what next. But why don't you, for people who haven't seen that or for people who have, and, and just to sort of elaborate that, why don't you talk a little bit about like your experiences and what you're thinking about next? Yeah, so my experiences are based in part on being editor-in-chief at SPPS, but not just that. I've also been associate editor of the journals i've been on boards of societies and publishers and things like that um so i've had a lot of luck and opportunities in the last few years to see what things are like in the like rooms where decisions are made and see what things are like behind closed doors and some of those have been really positive experiences some of them less so some of them i've resigned from um and but and so I've always had this tension in my head. I think many of us do, and I'm curious how you guys deal with it, of like how much to work within the system and how much to tr- just like rattle the cage from outside and like try to go rogue and, and do things from outside the system. And I, I often feel a lot of guilt that I haven't been more outspoken on things. And I sometimes use the excuse that like, oh, I'm on the board or I'm on, I'm an editor or whatever, so I can't be outspoken. And so I was kind of curious like what, what I would do when I no longer had those excuses and many of those commitments wrapped up in the last few months. Um, so this is my chance to find out. Um, and I did, so I did apply to stay within the system. I applied for the psychological science editorship and didn't get it, but I posted my vision statement or I will have by the time this comes out so people can see what I would have liked to have done there. So I want to be honest that like my, my decision to go rogue and work outside the system was not entirely my decision. And I would have kept working from within if I got a position that I felt like I could do something good. So yeah. The I system don't... dumped you first. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Um, it's not them, it's me, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, the silver lining for me, and I was I was pretty bummed not to get the sex science. Not that I expected to get it, but it would have been really awesome. I would have been very excited to do it. So I won't lie, like that was sad. But the silver lining is like, okay, now there's like no excuses anymore. I, mm-hmm. you know, have very very few responsibilities. Um, and so what? <laughs> so what I thought well, actually the idea came from my mom. <laughs> she was like, why don't you just keep sending people comments on papers just like send them unsolicited comments on their papers um and you know it's funny i mean maybe she was influenced by all of our conversations about open science and stuff or maybe it was just you know parent being a parent but 
it sounds kind of crazy, but then I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, like, I guess, like, if my feedback w- had any value during the four years as editor-in-chief, then maybe it still has some value, even if I'm not officially an editor. And I've been a big fan, increasingly, so, of open review. I, I really admire the people who have the guts to openly review things and write, like, post-publication reviews. Had I been a reviewer-type post, there were a couple of great ones in the last few weeks, one by Ruben Arslan and one by Joe Hilgard. Um, or like just commenting, writing reviews of preprints or things like that. I think those are like really, really good services for the field. And so, yeah, what I decided to do was to try to kind of dedicate a chunk of my time. I'm going to have a lot more time now, um, to systematically doing that and trying to do that in a way that is in line with my values, the same way that I tried to do editing in line with my values. So things like trying to give attention to papers that aren't getting a lot of attention already. So I'm not going to like write reviews of papers that are already getting tons of comments and attention. Um, Trying to blind myself to the author's identities when I write my review, trying to definitely disclosing conflicts of interest um, and trying not to review papers where I have serious conflicts of interest, Um, things like that. And so there's the open reviewing part. And then, but I think you, if people want to they can go even further and be like an editor at large so take the papers you've reviewed curate your favorite ones write you know a blog post or table of contents every so often saying here are some papers I like that if I had been an editor I would have accepted these or something like that um so that it's not just the hand-picked editors that have all the power I mean they still basically do but if more and more people do this kind of thing then we can have a lot of different evaluations of papers not just to you know, psych science accept this or reject it, but what do other people think? I'm curious, like, so just to get a picture of exactly what you're going to do, would you write a review the same way that you would if you were chosen as a reviewer in a traditional journal? I'm not sure. Um, Not always. I think there might be some papers where I really just have one very specific comment and I won't write an overall assessment of everything else. Maybe it's outside my area of expertise. Maybe it would take me too long to get enough information to like I'm not going to be the reviewer who reanalyzes the data most of the time because I barely know R so there's things Mm -hmm. that I think would be great to do if you're doing a comprehensive review but I'm not always going to do and I think one of the nice things about open review is that it's easier to get a, a set of comprehensive reviews from a diverse range of reviewers because a lot of different people can opt in. So like James mm-hmm. Heathers could just go around and add in mice to whatever papers he wants. And, right. you know, other people can point out that this is a weird sample and other people can point out, you know, great operationalization here or whatever, you know, th- whatever your particular interest and expertise is, you can review that aspect of the paper. I don't know how focused or broad my reviews will be. I think that'll depend a lot on the specific papers. And do you see this as like primarily a service to the authors of the papers or no. people who are reading their papers <laughs> uh readers yeah okay i would I, it would be awesome if authors got something out of it and i will try to write it in such a way that that in- increases the chances of that but uh-huh. i don't think authors will always be happy about it um and that, that uh-huh. shouldn't be the standard right like once you publish something including a preprint you know i think it's fair game for people to share their thoughts about it um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I don't want to antagonize authors, but I know that's a risk I'm taking. But I think the main benefit would be to other readers. I want to know what other, right? When when I see those, had I been a reviewer blog posts, I learned so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really makes me wish I could have seen the reviews during the review process or informal review process. So 
I don't like think that I have more to contribute than others. I hope others contribute too, because my hope is that if I do it, that'll help normalize it. And then I'll benefit from other people's reviews. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you're describing, Samin, sounds, yeah, it's sort of a bit like a DIY overlay journal in some ways. And uh, I think it's a really interesting idea. And I, I totally think you should do it. I, I think as like, I think one of the cool things about you doing this yourself is you can be as experimental as you want to be, right? You can experiment with how you choose papers, you can experiment with how comprehensive or narrow and how you formulate your comments and things like that. And so I'm sure this will evolve. I mean, one thing I'm wondering about is, so something that when people talk about like, oh, we talked about this a little bit in our What If There Were No Journals episode. Um, like the the selection process when it when we get into a world without journals or or just outside of the world of journals even if they still exist right and and you mentioned specifically that you're going to be looking for papers that haven't gotten a lot of attention otherwise mm-hmm. like what do you think of the issue of sort of writing negative reviews mm-hmm. you know writing about problems serious problems so like you know both sort of how useful is that to science as a field and also just the reaction. So like Samin went and found this preprint that like had seven downloads and, and nobody looked at and she wasn't paying attention to the authors. And it turns out this was some undergrad thesis. And uh, she wrote a review saying that the sample sucks and the statistics are wrong. (laughs) You know, um, so I think first you should always write reviews and decision letters as if the authors were undergrads doing their first paper. I mean, without being condescending, of course, which I think you shouldn't be even when the authors are undergrads writing their first paper. Um, what that means in reality is different to different people. So I bet some people would read my decision letters and think I wasn't gentle enough, but I am trying to be, and I will continue to try to be. Um, yeah, like I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, to be honest, if I'm completely honest, I think in the beginning I will sometimes not post those reviews. So sometimes I'll read a paper I'll start writing the review, write a lot of critical stuff. And then when I unblind myself and see that it's like somebody, I don't know, whatever. I might, based on who it is or how little attention the paper's gotten or things like that, I might decide not to post the more negative reviews at first. Mm -hmm. I hope that'll change over time. I hope that eventually, I mean, I don't know. Like, I know this sounds arrogant, but if you're an undergrad or you're somebody from whatever, for whatever demographic reasons or other reasons, career stage, geographic location, whatever, you often don't get feedback and you wouldn't, and like the desk rejections you get are form letters and blah, blah. Wouldn't it be nice for somebody who has some experience who's, I don't know, I don't want to like, I don't know. Like I think if I, when I had been an undergrad, somebody who had just been editor in chief of a mainstream journal read my paper that barely anybody had read and sent me comments. Like maybe I would prefer that they not be public. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's, I don't know. I'm not sure what to expect in terms of authors reactions. Um, yeah. I think some, some of this is because preprints are so new mm-hmm. to our field and the sort of the pragmatics of what it means to post a preprint are still in flux. Right. Mm-hmm. So somebody submits to a journal you know, on a pragmatic level, they've said, I would like you to run this in your limited space in SPPS. And then the thing, the reviews in the decision letter, it's a decision letter, it's a response to a request mm-hmm. to like yeah. get this in. Um, so, so 
and that's sort of like the pragmatic meaning of sending something to a journal. And so there, then it feels very appropriate to like yeah. send a, a critique and review because that's everybody understands that's the process. And I think what you're proposing is super interesting because, you know, what is the meaning of putting something on a preprint server? It's not the same as necessarily as like sending it to a journal where there's a very specific ask mm -hmm. of like, I want, I, I know that part of the process is this will be judged and, and I'm asking for something to be given to me, which is like limited space in this journal or whatever, or the approval of, of editors. So I think, I think like a lot of this is, is and this is why I think like I'm, I'm raising these questions, but I'm really glad you're doing this is because I think we have to collectively figure out what preprints are even for yeah. because and what editors are for and what editors are for yeah like posting something on a preprint server is publishing yeah. by definition it's not our traditional mindset or our our prototype in our heads of what publishing is but you're disseminating something for the world to see um that is you know preprint that is what preprints are um and and so i think like so it may be yeah i'll be really interested to you know maybe we should I think do a retrospective I, in six months like how you how you go about yeah reviewing and critiquing something like that may turn out to be different yeah doesn't mean we're not going to do it it just means we might do it in a different way i do want to get people thinking about what are preprints for and how can we do open review and like start experimenting with it i also really want to put pressure on the question of why do we give editors and journals so much power like, mm -hmm. I really think we don't think about that very much. And it's really bizarre to me how much power I had as an editor and how little accountability there was and how mm -hmm. sorry people feel for editors. <laughs> like, we have so much power. We control the most important rewards, at least in, in the social sciences. I think journal acceptance, not from SPPS, but from more prestigious journals, are, like, the biggest rewards there are out there. And mm -hmm. editors control them with almost no transparency, almost no accountability. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm fully on board with this like editors have too much power idea and that like then you yeah get these kind of like Matthew effect things going on where um, those who have power then are more likely to I, I confer power on people who have power and things like that um, but just to play like the old fuddy-duddy I guess for the sake of like <laughs> debate I have a hard like the I have a hard time picturing how things would work and maybe you're not suggesting this if everything worked this way. Um, so and I think that you talk about some of these things in your blog post. So you talk about like uh, the fact that like people could get their friends to write positive reviews and stuff like that. And there are some I think nice things about the way that the review process works now, where like everybody gets like anybody can submit their paper to Psych Science. Um, and they will, at least their paper will be looked at by an editor. Um, if their paper goes out for review, they'll get, you know, like two or three reviews, like, or maybe four at some places. Um, so there's like some sort of control over how much feedback you're getting. Um, and I know that like, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's not a lot of consistency in terms of blinding and things like that, but maybe like some journals are trying to accomplish some, some kind of like yeah. anonymity. And so... How do you, how do you? 
Well, first, keep we, that don't, kind we don't of... actually know if those things are working well at journals, right? We don't know that conflicts of interest are kept to a minimum, that people aren't reviewing their friends' papers. And in fact, the few times that I've like right. been asked to review something and emailed the editor and said, I have this that might constitute a conflict, they have never told me, oh, then don't review it. And I would like to do an experiment yeah. where I reply to editors-in-chief and say, this is my best friend, but I think I can be objective and see what they say. Or this I, is like someone I'm collaborating with right now, but I think I can be objective and see what they say. So I don't uh -huh. think we actually know that they're doing a good job of that. I agree it's a problem. It's a problem we'll have to deal with an open review if people start, when people start reviewing their friends' papers and things like that. The like guaranteed one set of eyeballs on a paper, again, we don't know. So many desk rejection letters are form letters that there's really very little basis to know that the person doing the desk rejection actually carefully considered the paper and it and you don't actually get feedback you just get a decision unless it's the rare desk rejection letter that has feedback mm -hmm. so how did you benefit from that one pair of eyeballs if they didn't write anything specific to your paper in the desk rejection letter right uh, but if we looked at the variability in people who like respond to or comment on or look at preprints that exist right now mm -hmm. it would be massively higher than the variability in like people who respond to or comment on papers that are submitted to a regular journal. Yeah. Well, right now, almost nobody, I mean, there's not that many comments on, on yeah, SciArchive, right. for example. Um, so I think we need to be very, very conscious of what we want to achieve. So if we want to achieve like some amount of homogeneity in how many eyeballs look at each paper, then we need a system mm -hmm. for that. And I think it would be great if preprint servers who have no money and run entirely on volunteers right now, but if they mm -hmm. could coordinate like volunteers who want to review, people who want their papers looked at, pair them up, make sure there's like some balance mm -hmm. across the papers, maybe even watch out for conflicts of interest. You know, mm -hmm. you could have a system where there's a middle person kind of trying to look out for those issues and do it transparently so that everybody can see how those things are happening, how well right. they're, they're working and so on. I mean, that I think is the, obviously, I guess, the coolest thing about what you're proposing is just that like these things take place out in the open rather than like you know in these mysterious emails that um rarely get communicated outside of like the reviewers and the editor and the authors mm -hmm. um and also i i think you make this really good point about how be if somebody is an editor-in-chief we value their opinion so highly their opinion is highly valuable um and then there could be other people who are extremely informed and have really good advice for you about their paper and their opinion basically doesn't matter at all mm -hmm. um which seems like not the way that it should be mm -hmm. so so what happens in in five years samin's monthly newsletter has come to be widely respected <laughs> as you know as an important marker mm -hmm. in the, you know Samin is now the kingmaker <laughs> of social and personality psychology is there transparency about how like you say you're going to look for these things but but like I mean journals have a policy that says the editor looks there's a set of eyeballs on mm -hmm. everything you're raising the question of whether that actually happens mm -hmm. um you know how how are you accountable for the selection process? What happens if Samin's 
newsletter is pretty good, but Sanjay's newsletter is really good, and I'm less principled than you are, which is not a hypothetical. <laughs> um, and maybe I say I'm doing certain things, but you're not quite sure. Maybe I just I don't say them. I yeah. just every month I put out a newsletter that's like, here's Sanjay's favorite ten papers. Yeah. And so you shouldn't yeah, take so my word it, that I'm doing certain things. It should be okay. measurable, right? So if I say I'm I'm mostly gonna I'm gonna prioritize papers that don't get a lot of attention that should be documentable, right? It should be like relatively easy to figure out the papers that I'm reviewing, how many downloads or views or whatever have they gotten, what's their altmetric score, whatever, relative to other ones. Um, if I say I'm gonna declare my conflicts of interest up front in every review, I, I, I have to do it, right? Like that's not something you just have to take my word for. So I think we need to minimize, yeah, like I think we should not just take people's word for things. The So what I envision if this worked, which, you know, I'm not that, optimistic but in a world where things went really really smoothly and this worked there would be Samin's list there would be Sanjay's list there would be groups of people together who create overly like journals with actual like more structure and multiple reviewers and things like that um, I mean meta psychology is the closest thing to that right now um, I think it pretty much is that so I think I would like to see more journals or overlay journals or just groups of people I mean journal clubs could just become a curation program too like every week they read a paper they post their comments on hypothesis using hypothesis on the preprint if there is one or on the open access paper if it's open access and then then you know every year they could make a list of like their favorite their top three papers and maybe the like you know university of arkansas journal club yearly list is going to be the thing to be on and one nice thing about this is that anybody can become an editor of a curated list or an overlay journal and so that that makes it first like that dilutes a little bit how much prestige any one list can have because there's way more of them and it also makes it easier for people to call me out if i'm doing a bad job either in terms of integrity or quality or something like that there's less risk in calling me out if i'm just like a random person making a curated list than if i'm the official selected editor of the flagship journal of the society and blah blah, blah. like Right now, I think it's very hard to call out editors or journals if you see a systematic problem in their practices. But if it's one among many individuals whose opinions is respected, there's still some risk, but but there's a little bit more possibility that your career won't take as big of a hit if you call them out. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, politics and hierarchy, all these things, they're not going to go away. But Mm -hmm. I think there'll be less of a problem the more people take on these roles as evaluators and curators, the fewer gatekeepers, the fewer connections matter, the less connections matter for having those roles if people can opt into them. Um, And the more transparency there is for people to evaluate, are they doing a good job in those roles? Um, But yeah, those will still be a problem, those issues. This might seem obvious, but I'm still curious to know your answer. So what's the rationale behind choosing articles that don't get a lot of attention? Because I'm worried about the Matthew effect, that famous people's, everyone's going to want to read the famous, the famous people's preprints, um, and then it'll be really hard for new researchers to get a foothold. So, so that implies that to some degree, you do think that like writing these reviews will be helpful to the authors, right? Uh, getting attention is helpful to the authors, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, assuming they're doing decent work. I kind of, 
I hope we come back to this in a future episode because I'm I'm sort of I'm battling these dual impulses of like trying to mentally stress test every possible way this <laughs> yeah. could go wrong, and also feeling like a hypocrite because literally like yesterday, the day before we recorded <laughs> this, I posted a thread about how we think of the worst case scenario for new policies, however improbable, yeah, and then well. impose them on those grounds. And and I think this is a great case of you. I suspect you doing this. You're going to figure out like things you're doing that would be a good idea to make a standard part of this, and you're going to figure out like, oh, here's how I could do it better and whatever. And and but also, I kind of I, if you guys don't mind me shifting a little bit, I'm kind of curious for the we jumped right into the what next. But mm-hmm. if you don't mind, I'm really interested in in the what just happened part of part of yeah. this transition in your mm-hmm. life. Like. Me too. And and maybe connecting it to a little bit because we've talked a little bit about like the promise of journals and and how they might sh- fall short in practice. Like I'm curious from your perspective, having now been editor at SPPS and have, having had these other roles, like what are some of the things that you w- think we ought to be doing to? And I, and I know you've talked about some of this before on the podcast and elsewhere, but like thing like how would you make that system better? Um, like what are, you know, so like what are ways to bring more transparency and accountability if we're going to take the incremental approach with the existing system rather than doing something radically new? Yeah, I'm a little bit torn because I think that the reasons why people, members of these societies, et cetera, aren't doing more to put pressure on their societies and their journals to be more transparent, to adopt different practices, I think there are good reasons. I think there are real costs to criticizing or you know being really outspoken about the problems with existing power structures so I don't know that I want to tell people you should be doing these things but what I was surprised I didn't see is I never got any pressure uh, almost none I got you know a couple people emailed and said why don't you do registered reports at SPPS and my answer was I don't set policy you should contact the publication committee and I really hope you do (laughs) Um, but I think I don't know maybe the publication board got more emails but in my experience, I got very, very little pressure or pushback on like things that I suspect a lot of members of the societies that own the journal and people who want to be authors and reviewers for the journal might wish were different. I did get pressure in the other direction. I did get people telling me that I am like stepping on important people's toes and I shouldn't be disrejecting famous people and things like that. Those people aren't afraid to <laughs> make their voices heard. But I understand why... Mm-hmm the people on the other side are um i think it's a completely rational decision not to be too loud and outspoken about um the mainstream journals where publishing in those journals can make or break your career i mean again spps might not be in that category but um yeah i i was just really i mean surprised is the wrong word but it just really like was a major lesson for me like just how little accountability like I don't mean accountability I don't mean that they're like trying to get away with something but there's just no pressure to be responsive to what like societies have no idea what their membership wants and they're making guesses I think they're doing the best they can I think they have good intentions but a lot of their policies or lack of new policies are I think guesses about what their societies and their members and their authors and reviewers can handle what they're ready for and so on and so much of it yeah is like based on (laughs) who they're afraid of, what they think, what risks they think they can take, things like that. And that cal- those calculations are not necessarily accurate reflections of what is in the best interest of their members and their field. 
Yeah. I, I, I would... I would add to that, I guess, from having been on the society side, and, and there was a period of time when you were editor of the journal and I was on the board of the one of the societies that part owns the journal, and, and so it was kind of, that was an interesting period, mm-hmm. I think, for a lot of reasons, but uh, um, I think it's a, you know, my experience having been on the society board side is that, yes, what you said is absolutely true, that, that it's really hard to have a read on what your members want. Part of that is like you have these meetings once or twice a year um, and issues come up and you're just trying to think on the spot. And so it's like, what do I think or what? It's not that people don't want to know, but it's kind of like it just it's not structured very well to do that. Part of it is, I think, like the people I think what you're saying applies to the people that care is that they don't necessarily especially if they're earlier career they don't necessarily want to sort of be trying to lobby and exert mm-hmm. pressure and I think part of it is like a lot of people just don't know or think about how these things work yeah. like I think and I, I think that that is very understandable because people are super busy and you know nobody teaches you like how does society governance mm-hmm. work and why should you care about that mm-hmm. um, and and part of it is like so I think a lot of the onus is on societies to be more proactive but it's really tough because we would you know we we would have be faced with decisions and and we'd be like how how can we get input and you know um so I think it's a structural problem and and so I I wouldn't want to I would want to so so yeah I'm not making excuses for societies I think it's on societies I think they have to find ways to get around those structural problems because that's their job and I'm not sure they want to to be honest I think like and now like I'm drawing from experiences and other things too like I think a lot of the elite institutions want to listen to the most eminent people in their group and they're not actually that motivated to find out to a think about what's actually best for the field even if it comes at the cost of pissing off the most eminent people or b find out what everyone else like the masses thinks i don't know i think there's a lot there's so much concern and fear about pissing off the eminent people and making sure that those people feel respected and so on and that really comes at a, a huge cost yeah, I think those two things actually reinforce each other, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that like, I think if, if you did have some way of pointing to a strong mandate for membership, mm-hmm. that would make it really tough for people to just say, well, famous so-and-so wants to do this. Mm-hmm. Like, if you could actually point to a survey or a petition or something like that. And so for people that want to see changes, those kinds of things can really empower people on boards or whatever who want to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And likewise, I think... Th- the the people that just want to get their way because it helps them or their friends or it's just what they're comfortable with um they're they're probably some of the people that are the least motivated to go out and ask the membership what they think i think one thing we need to expect from our leaders people on boards and editors and so on is to have to justify their practices their policies etc and there's so little mechanism for that and who's going to challenge them right like these are often very powerful famous people like i remember just one anecdote like uh, at one point the publication board of sppps forwarded me an email they didn't tell me from whom they said it was from an award-winning social psychologist and this person said samin just rejected my paper for these reasons i uh, i found this extremely distasteful and i will never submit to sppps again and they forwarded this to me as evidence that i was doing something wrong and when i said like what okay tell me which paper i'll send you the paper and the decision letter and we can debate like what was wrong with my decision or maybe maybe i was wrong i don't know 
and they don't don't want to have that discussion. Like I think that's the minimum we should expect from people in positions of power is to have that conversation. If they're if they're saying something's wrong, then okay, tell me why I'm not allowed to do this, or tell me why you're against this policy change that we want to implement. And I think there's too few opportunities for those debates to be had. And I think they should be had in public. I think all of this should happen where everyone can see, where members can see what it, how does this journal work, how how are policies made, mm-hmm. and so on. I think so much of this stuff is hidden. It's one of the reasons I wanted to post my vision statement for Psych Science. Like, I want to know what the vision of the editor they did choose is. I mean, I'm, we're not going to find yeah. out, but why isn't that public? Um, right. Or, yeah, candidates for board positions. Like, we need to know more about who they are and what they stand for. That should be a reasonable expectation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when, Sajay, you were saying that, like, not everybody knows how societies, like, work and how they interact with journals and stuff like that, I think part of it is because, yeah, people are busy and whatever, but part of it is because, like, there's not a clear way to find out. I think some of that is by design. (laughs) Some of that is, yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Yeah, and this is, so, I mean, this has been a, a recurring theme, I think, in a lot of discussions around, like, discourse around science reform, which is a lot of the reform discourse, the pro-reform discourse, takes place in the open, um, and that's partly a function of just the underlying values of what people who want reform want, is that they want to be more transparent, including about how they're asking for things, but part of it is also the power asymmetry, and a lot of the resistance to reform takes place quietly behind closed doors by people doing things like forwarding an editor uh, forwarding an editor a letter from someone and repeating the person's eminent credentials but not engaging on the substance right Samin's experience is like I yeah stuff like that happens a lot and so when it's like oh these these you know destructo people are being loud on social media and they're the problem. It's like the the things that they're responding to are in, are being are happening quietly, and and it's because that's where power does its work. Yeah. Is they don't power doesn't if power doesn't have to be public, it won't be. I'm a little nervous, like saying all of this and posting these blog posts and doing this because I feel like some people have been okay with me because I've been working within the system and relatively quietly. And I feel like there's some people who will like come up to me and be like, you're one of the good ones, but like those people who are, you know, raising hell. I mean, like one person that people often complain to me about is Chris Chambers. And I'm just like, tell me what Chris Chambers has done that was so bad. Like maybe I've missed something. Uh I don't know. I don't read everything he writes, but I feel guilty. Like we should all be, I think, I don't know. I, I, I think it's still good to work within the system. Those people who have the chance to do it, I I think it's great. I don't judge anybody else for taking that approach. I, I've been taking it. And I, like I said, I would have kept doing it if I had the chance. But I do think I don't like when people give me credit for doing that. It's like, no, I, I just like don't have as much guts. And I've been lucky enough to get the opportunity to work within the system. But but if other people don't or don't want to, that's totally fine, too. And we need those people, too. And I, I don't like that attitude of like, it's fine to be a revolutionary, but only if you do it nicely from within the system and so on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've gotten the you're one of the good ones thing, too. And, and yeah, it really grates on me mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. And, and I mean, I, I think one of the one, one of the ways I've tried to use that is to like you 
alluded to sort of try to press people to then say, well, okay, the people that you don't consider the good ones, Mm -hmm. like, can you talk to me about them? Like, can you actually name specifics so we can have a conversation? People often like, there's this sort of genteel way of like, well, no, no, naming names would be Mm -hmm. destructive. And it's like, no, like casting general aspersions is actually quite destructive. (laughs) And, and, you know, like, like, let's have a con either let's have a conversation or stop saying that shit and sometimes i'll say do you mean so and so because then i agree but is it just that person or is it like do you mean something broader um so i do like i don't it's not that i don't think there's any basis for saying there are some bad eggs and in any group of course and in this group too um but yeah i agree it needs to be we need to be clear what we're talking about and i don't like it when what people are actually talking about are people doing things i think are quite brave and good and uh yeah so wait, for the record, Chris Chambers is or isn't a bad egg? In my book? <laughs> no. In my book, he's not a bad egg. I mean, no. maybe if someone like sends me something terrible he said or did, I'll change my mind. But uh, No, I'm If you I, have I, a complaint sorry, about I was, Chris I was trying to make a joke there. Yeah, I feel bad. Sorry. I've never this met is... the guy, so like I feel kind of bad picking on him. I, I, I really hope I meet Chris in person someday because yeah. we've like had like a lot of friendly correspondence yeah. on Twitter and, and email and whatever and, and uh, yeah maybe uh, maybe I'll actually meet him in person someday. Yeah I'd like um, that too. Yeah I think we're fans of Chris Chambers. Yeah yeah and i have defended him quite a bit when people say stuff like that but he, yeah so he he's a really interesting case right uh, he's exactly this phenomenon where he's not like people can't point to anything he's actually done that's a problem but he's just really uh um he's not like trying to be deferential to people's right. egos mm. and that's really what's rubbing people the wrong way yeah and and so yeah, there are other people that you know maybe are doing some things that are more problematic. But then yeah, when they pull him and it's like, oh okay, no no, you're not responding to the substance. Mm-hmm. You're just responding to who's making you uncomfortable, and that's mixing people who are doing things that are fine mm-hmm, into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. and maybe after I do this, people will talk about me the way they talk to me about Chris Chambers. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I think I'm ready. Well, they won't for that. They'll talk to me about you. yeah. No no not to and my then, face yeah. And then I'll, I'll <laughs> text you. And be like, You're not going to believe Alexa <laughs> going off about what a tyrant Samina has turned into. She used you to be such a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, uh, are we are we good? Have we uh, have we figured out what Samin's going to do next? Yeah, to... I think I think we have a plan. I think I mean I, I guess I, I was too. So I'm going to start like a we, campaign called yeah. Flip Yourself. On the, based on the idea of like flipping journals that you can flip yourself to be an open reviewer and I'm hoping I like I've resisted coordinating with anyone else I like the idea of like everyone experiment for themselves see what works for them like we'll learn more that way so I'm not like starting this as a group activity but if other people want to do what works for them as little or as much as works for them I think it would be cool well I'm I'm gonna go find out what the hell hypothesis is after this podcast is over it turns out <laughs> that's my it first. doesn't work <laughs> in chrome i think i'm still figuring it out but it might be that it doesn't work in i chrome? think so they have a chrome extension but apparently i haven't been able to get it to work and someone told me to try other browsers because the chrome extension doesn't work okay yeah. so when i fire up uh firefox people are going to know i'm really yeah, uh, yeah. i'm really getting into yeah, it yeah. it's like oh sanjay's on <laughs> firefox today don't don't talk to him yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thank you, 
thanks to me actually for for mm-hmm. talking about well, your experiences and plans and episode on this yeah and and thank you listeners for listening to the black goat um and if you're about to go to sips enjoy yourselves at sips and if you're not enjoy yourselves not and we will talk to you next time mm-hmm.